morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. We've had a beautiful service already, powerful service, and uh, just hearing about revival has been impactful for me. And I, I know Jeff said this, but that was spontaneous. They didn't plan that. It started on Wednesday morning just as a normal chapel service, and then some people hung around and uh, continued to do worship, and then more people came, and then more people came. People traveled from Michigan and South Carolina to go and be a part of this revival. So let's continue praying for them and praying for us. Uh, and uh, for God's spirit to just be poured out and uh, unleashed upon our country and uh, upon us. Amen? Uh, yeah, so it's good to be here and uh, good to see you again. It's been a minute since I've preached in this room. Welcome to those of you joining us online and welcome to those of you in the balcony as well. I see you up there. Um, I, I, hi, yeah, hi. And I see two of our four kids, so we're batting 500 for Christians. You know, good job, you know. That's why you have multiple kids, so you feel better when some of them, you know, come to church. <laughs> so just giving you a hard time. In fact, it must run in the, in, in, in the DNA because I loved growing up in my Southern Baptist church uh, I loved sitting in the balcony uh, when I was growing up. Something about it, you know, if I needed to exit to get a drink of water or use the restroom, you know, as kids often have to do multiple times during church, uh, it was a great spot to sit. But I got my eyes on you. <clears throat> Can't fool me. We have been in our series Blueprint, and we're talking about the foundation for life, and we've talked about the foundation of the authority of Scripture and the teaching and the preaching of Jesus, and we've talked about friendships and people and who to have in our lives and influence and how can we influence others, and we've talked about the need for growth and how do we continue to build upon what Jesus has already done. Today, we are going to be asking the question, when is it time to do some renovations on our faith? How do we know that it's time, and what does it look like to do it well? There was a recent article in Forbes magazine that a couple had bought a house just before the housing market went crazy. So the beginning of COVID, they bought a house, and they got all the concessions they wanted in the house. They even walked in with some equity, and they knew that going in, they were going to need to do some renovations. They weren't wild about the colors. They weren't wild about the floor, and they wanted to add a big, large door uh, where there wasn't, so that was going to need to be custom built. And so they were really excited about it, and they got a hold of the contractor, and the contractor started the work, and it was supposed to be one month. One month turned into two months, two months turned into three months, three months turned into six months. And the couple was so disheartened that the contractors continued to make mistake after mistake after mistake that they finally, they just asked them to politely stop working on the house. $20,000 later, the paint, the couple had to go redo the paint. They looked at the floors, the half of the floors were painted where they wanted them stained. They still needed to redo the tile, and they had to reorder the custom door. Have you ever had a renovation gone wrong? How do you know when it's time to do some renovations on the house of faith that we've been building, which is our lives. Statistics say that some people do home renovations every three to five years. I thought that was, was quite frequent until they threw in there, well, adding a coat of, coat of paint is a renovation. Well, let's say you've been a Christian for, you know, three years, 13 years, 30 years. 
Is it time to do some renovations on your faith, some updates, some refreshers? And how do you know and what does it look like? People love DIY shows today. They love DIY shows. They love home makeover shows. They're so popular. In fact, uh, they're so popular that people will tune into these shows and they will try to do it themselves. They love the tearing down of things. They love the building up of things. One popular one is the Property Brothers. One of the Property Brothers says his favorite part is the destruction phase. When you get to go in there and you just get to, hey, we're going to knock down this wall. So you get your glasses on and you get your sledge out and you take down that wall. And I would argue that it's his favorite phase because he knows that they're not just going to destroy, but they're going to rebuild. There's something in the heart of humanity that just doesn't want to just see things destroyed but we want to see things restored and remade. And I wonder if that's in our own heart. We wonder if maybe it's not too late for some of us. Maybe we're wondering if we can be restored, if we can be remade. So when I'm talking about renovation, I'm not talking about simply destruction. Renovation does not mean desolation. We're not just tearing down. We're not just deconstructing, we're reconstructing. We're, we're looking at things and saying, what needs to shift? What might need to change? How do I need to rethink things? All upon the firm foundation that has already been laid, which is the message of Christ and the authority of the Scriptures. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. God is a renovating God. When you look at the Bible... And the introduction to the Bible and the story of Scripture, you see that God has already placed a blueprint. It's creation. And he set this blueprint up, and he has actually confined himself and the way that he works to the blueprint of the created order. But we all know that sin broke and marred and, and hurt like a parasite attached itself to the goodness of God's creation and so we're wondering what's going to be done with humanity and all creation. Listen to Matthew 19, 28. God is a renovating God. God is a restoring God. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal, if, you're underlined, if you like to underline things, you can underline that or highlight it. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is an interesting Greek word. It's actually a compound word. The Greek word here is made up of two words, one of them which is pelin, which means to do again. It just simply means again. And the other word, you'll know it will be sound familiar as soon as I say it, genesia, which can mean origins or beginning. So quite literally, Jesus is saying, truly I tell you, at the beginning again, at the remaking again, at the starting over again, and it's meant to take the reader's and the hearer's mind all the way back to the book of Origins, to Genesis, and say something like whatever Jesus is doing in his death and resurrection and his renewal of the cosmos through the people of God, it's going to be something in continuation with where the story started. It's a remaking. It's a renovating. It's not a destruction. Somewhere along the lines, we've misunderstood God as judge. 
The Old Testament paints a positive picture of God as judge. The Hebrews wanted God to come and judge because they needed an advocate on their behalf. Somebody who would stand in their midst and say, I found them and I judge on behalf of them against all the evil and persecution that's come their way. And God is not simply up to destroy the good things that he's made. He is a renovator. He wants to renew. He wants to begin again. Eden restored and even further. This is confirmed in Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's a renovating God. He's a restoring God. So how can you tell if your faith might need a little bit of renovation? I'll give you three brief things. First, your love for God has grown cold. If our love for God and our love for others has grown cold, we might need some faith renovation. Jesus says in the Gospels, because of the presence of evil and how evil manifests itself in different ages and in different times, the temptation will be to look out on the evil that is taking place, to look out on the harm and the hurt and the pain and for our hearts to grow hard, cynical, critical, for our hearts to close up and grow cold and say, well, I don't know if God's really moving, if, God's re if God really exists, if God really reigns. Could those promises that God made in the Scripture still be real and relevant 2,000 years later? And why does it look so bad? And Jesus said, there's a temptation because of the days of evil will grow, that the love of many will grow cold. And the hope is that we are not in the many that our love grows cold. I'm not a, I'm not a student of revival, personally, but I've listened to students of revival, and they often say that there are two key ingredients for revival to take place. One of them is confession, and the other one is prayer. Confession of sins and prayer. And if we want white-hot revival, we might need to feel the weight of our own sin. I, I don't need to feel your sin. Not the sin of them out there. Y'all's sin out in the world, right? No, my own sin, my own brokenness, my own failure to live up to who I even want to be and who God designed me to be. And I need to feel the weight of that and that lead me to confession and lead me to prayer. Maybe those are some key ways that we don't let our love for God grow cold and we don't let our love for others grow cold. Secondly, how can we tell if we need some faith renovation if we don't have good answers to hard questions? The world can ask some hard questions. We can ask some hard questions. We're experiencing some hard questions even as a denomination right now. And I would say that we would need to have well thought out, well reasoned, helpful, winsome answers for people that might engage with. That's what Peter says, right? To be able and ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And sometimes the questions change. So questions that were asked 20 years ago may not be the questions that are asked today. Questions that are asked today may not be the questions that are asked 20 years from now. It's each generation's responsibility to say, what are the questions about faith? What are they coming? What are the hard questions? Let's tackle them head on. Let's be prepared and have some good thoughtful answers. Let's avoid what I like to call bumper sticker Christianity. Right? Where we try to give answer to hard questions with a bumper sticker. 
or a cliche. It just doesn't work. So, if we find ourselves unable to answer hard questions, or if we find ourselves simply giving uh, 20-year-old answers to current questions that are going on, maybe we need some renovation in our faith. Thirdly, something is sabotaging our spiritual growth. Something is sabotaging our spiritual growth. We continue to read, we continue to pray, but we continue to continue to struggle with the same old same. Maybe we're not seeing as much character change in our own life. We're not growing in compassion. We're not growing in the ability to navigate difficult conflict in the family. Maybe there's some type of hurt or trauma or pain that we think we're being really spiritual about, and we just keep brushing it under the rug and sweeping it under the rug, and in Jesus' name, we claim that it's not bothering us, but really it's sabotaging our spiritual growth. Perhaps we need a faith renovation. So, maybe one of those connected with you, and now you have to pay attention to the rest of my talk because you're like, okay, you've got me intrigued. How, do we, how can we tell if we need some renovation? And then how do we know we're doing it well? How do we know that we're doing it well? And I want to give you three simple answers for how do we know that we're renovating our faith well. First, we do theology in community. We do theology in community with each other. All right, listen to Acts 17, 10 through 12. Maybe, maybe some of you have heard this passage. You've heard about the Bereans, the Bereans and how they received the word of Christ. Listen, as soon as it was night... Paul and Silas, they had to sneak out. The believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they hadn't been there yet. It was the first time for the Bereans. They went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. All right? Again, if you are underlining or highlighting, these are some great points to take into account. For they received, they examined, and then they believed. Just because Paul showed up in the synagogue doesn't mean they swallowed everything he said, hook, line, and sinker. They received him, though, we're excited to hear you. We're eager to hear you. We're open to hear you. We can learn from you. We can learn from anybody. But we're going to take what you said, and then what did they do? They examined it for themselves. They examined it for themselves. We're going to take what you said, and we're going to go back to the Scriptures, and we're going to do what? We're going to talk amongst ourselves. Don't you like it when the teacher says that? The professor says that, okay, I got something to do. You go ahead and talk amongst yourselves, right? The Bereans went, and they talk amongst, talked amongst themselves. It's got to have that one on it. And they discussed and they examined. Did you hear what he said about the Messiah? Did you hear what he said about the promised one coming from the line of David? Did you hear what he said about the reign and rule and what it would look like? Let's discuss. Let's figure this out. Could this be the one that even Genesis 3 talked about? One come from the line of woman that would crush the serpent's head. Could this be a fulfillment of the first gospel? And they discussed amongst themselves. They did theology in community. They did not do theology in isolation. 
A theology developed in isolation is likely a theology in need of modification. I'll say it again. A theology developed in isolation is likely a theology in need of modification. I said this in sermon prep this week. I need somebody across the table from me when I say something a little off to raise an eyebrow. Or at least to say, I've never heard that before. Tell me more. I've never heard it like that. When I was in a seminary at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, one of the opportunities I had was to do a global theology class. And in this class, uh, we didn't just study Western theology from Western authors, from Western scholars. We studied European theology. One of the things I found interesting is we studied African theology, and we studied the African thought process of the Trinity. And we, took, we had a, a book that was written, it was a, a collection of a lot of different articles from global scholars. And my mind began to be challenged because things that I had as preconceived notions, they needed to be pressed upon. They needed to be shaped. Some things I had to move around because, you know what, people in different cultures thought about it a little bit differently. It wasn't that I was wholesale wrong. It was just that I needed to think th through things a little bit differently because they brought a different perspective to the table. Have you ever been on a mission trip and you go and you worship with someone in a different country and you start to realize that they have different perspectives when it comes to worship and prayer and how God works and what the Christian life is supposed to look like and maybe they have different perspectives on generosity and giving and you start to think, oh, I, that's shaping me. When you worship in a community of a different culture. It starts to shape you. It starts to impact you. We do theology in community. I've had the chance to go to Mexico and build homes in Juarez. You look across from um, El Paso, across the Rio Grande, and you look right across and you see Cardboard City. And you go over there and there's so much poverty. It starts to help you shape in a good way Maybe things that you need to rethink about who God is and how the world works. I've been to Africa three times, me and a friend of mine. We went and we trained pastors there in Ethiopia and then in some mountain villages in Malawi. It has an impact upon you when you start to see other places and how they do life and what they don't have. And when their life expectancy is 42, they begin to think about God and faith maybe a little bit differently and it impacts you. And we read theology in community and that community gives us feedback and we test ideas for some of you verbal processors you're like I already do this I just think my thoughts out loud right you think your thoughts out loud and you say them and then somebody kind of looks at you like well, you know I've never heard that let's talk about that that's an interesting thing to say but for some of us internal processors of which I am one maybe we need to be more out loud with our thought processes and we read in concert with the global church and the church historical. This is one of the challenges, which is why, where we are, where, why we are where we are as a denomination, and I've said this before to several groups of people, this is not unique to the United Methodist Conference. This is not a unique phenomenon. This, this I would argue, started this, this undermining of the authority of Scripture, started a long time ago in scholarship in Europe, and it has trended, and it's come in through America, and now it's trickled down through our seminaries and into our local churches. It's not unique to the UMC. It's happening all over the Western church. 
But there is a need to read theology in our community in the sense of a global community and in the sense of our historical community. Has the church always thought like this? What does the church in the South think? What does the church in the East think? What are they saying about these things? And we start to realize that we have a lot in common when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God. When we talk about the scriptures as being God-breathed and God-exhaled and they are reliable and trustworthy. When we talk about a virgin birth. When we talk about a death and an actual physical bodily resurrection. When we start to get into practical ethics on human sexuality, we start to realize that the traditional Orthodox interpretation of Scripture is actually in concert with the Greek Orthodox Church and a Roman Catholic Church and the Church in the East and the Church in the South and the Church historical. So the burden of proof does not lay upon those who would like to maintain the history of a traditional interpretation. The burden of proof lays upon people who say, I think everybody got it wrong. That's why it's important to do theology in community and in community with the global and the historical church. So, we do theology in community. We don't keep it to ourselves. But also, we're not afraid to ask tough questions. Doubt sometimes gets a bad rep in the church, right? Doubt gets a bad rep in the church. Questions get, often gets a bad rep in the church. Like, don't don't doubt, just believe. Don't ask hard questions, just believe. This is the simple truth. You just memorize this truth and you go on with yourself. I just got to tell you, that never worked for me. And I'm sure I gave a lot of Sunday school teachers and some pastors a headache or two. Because that never flew with me. I, was, I, I received Christ as an eight-year-old and I was baptized. And one of the things I wanted to know was, how do I know that I'm saved? I figured that's a pretty fair question. How do I know that I'm saved? You tell me that I can be saved if I put my faith in Jesus and I did what you said, but how do I know that I can trust that? Do you know what I was told? Don't doubt your salvation. And so hold on a second. I didn't say this at eight. I just, okay, yes, sir. But, you know, as I get older, I said, hold on a second. I'm not necessarily doubting my salvation like you're saying. I just have a question. How do I know that I can be assured that I'm in Christ and this is the real deal? I thought it was a fair question. And sometimes we get anxious or we get afraid about questions. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, I just think Jesus was never afraid of any question. He, he, he welcomed every question, any question you have. You bring your genuine curiosity, you bring your genuine question, you can ask it. When Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, which is the foundation for this whole series, the wise person who built their house upon a rock and, and, and is like a person who hears my words and does them or keeps doing them, it's a present tense, and keeps on doing them, he never said we couldn't examinate his claim. We couldn't examinate. <laughs> it didn't sound right when I said it. And now that I'm rethinking it, it's not right. I'm having questions about that word. <laughs> He never said we couldn't examine his claims. When Jesus says something, he's not insecure that we're going to have questions about it. He doesn't just pat us on the head and dismiss questions or downplay 
questions. He welcomes, I would argue, our doubts and our questions. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Work hard. Work hard. So you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. How can we correctly explain something if we don't understand it? How can we understand it unless we investigate it? How can we investigate it unless we have questions? And we should ask questions. Questions indicate curiosity. And I would even say, if we're honest about our doubts and we bring them to the good shepherd, doubt can lead us to a deeper faith. Doubt can lead us to a deeper faith. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure I understand that. Let's examine it. Let's investigate. You say, well, well, well what about doubting Thomas? He kind of gets this reputation, right? Like Thomas doubts. And what's, what's the difference between doubting Thomas and the man in Mark chapter 9? The man in Mark chapter 9, as you all know, the famous passage who says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. But Thomas, Thomas says this, unless I put my hands in his side, then I won't believe. Major difference. One of them feels like an ultimatum. Unless this happens, unless God shows up and answers this prayer and does this, and unless he heals, you know, we do this all the time, unless he heals my marriage or heals my child or does this, then I won't believe. We need to be careful about that kind of doubt. But the man in Mark 9, he doubted and yet said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me understand more. I understand a little bit. Help me understand more. So we should ask tough questions. How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? How do we know? How do I have this assurance that I am in Christ? How do we know that the scriptures that we're holding with all the Greek manuscripts and all the translations, how do we know that what we're holding is reliable? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is never afraid of those things. Isidore Isaac Ravi was born in Ramanov, Austria, July 29, 1898. Born into a Jewish family, he was brought to the United States by his family in 1899, and his early education was in New York, Manhattan and Brooklyn. In 1919, he graduated with a Bachelor of Chemistry at Cornell. After three years in non-scientific occupation, he started postgraduate studies in physics at Cornell in 1921, which he later continued at Columbia. In 1927, he re received his Ph.D. for magnetic properties of crystals. He continued his work and until 1944 when he won the Nobel Prize in science. And when a friend asked him, what made you want to become a scientist, he said, every day after school, my mother would walk with me, and she said this, did you ask good questions today? Did you ask good questions today? We do theology and community. We're not afraid to ask tough questions because God is a big God, and he has very satisfactory answers, I believe. 
And lastly, we measure the process by the fruit that we bear. We measure the renovations by the fruit that we bear. I was teaching our staff, um, leading our staff uh, in a Bible study this week, and we were talking about spiritual disciplines and the importance of spiritual disciplines, but also cautioned us and said spiritual disciplines don't necessarily equate spiritual growth. Just because we do spiritual disciplines, read the Bible, pray, fast, corporate worship, individual worship, meditation, whatever the spiritual discipline is, just because we do that does not necessarily mean that we are spiritually growing. You say, well, how do you, why, why would you say that? And I would say, well, look at the Pharisees. Probably, arguably more spiritually disciplined than anyone I've ever met with their rigorous commitment to those disciplines. And yet, Jesus said, whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers, trees that don't bear fruit. Spiritual disciplines prepare us for spiritual transformation, but they do not automatically make us spiritually transformed. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So Christ gave himself, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. The one of the primary goals for the believer when they come to Jesus is to be transformed or remade. It's to be renovated. There are some significant changes that have to take place within a fallen human heart. And the goal is to become more like Christ. So when we look at the gospels, and we look at the ministry of Jesus and the person of Jesus, this should be one of our goals. If we're renovating our faith and we're continuing to grow and we're not letting the cement dry and we're not letting you know, the paint fully dry, but we're continuing to be hungry and thirsty for who God is and how to learn more from him and grow, one of our templates is to look at Jesus and see who he was and what he taught and who he spent time with. And to see if our lives are going that direction. Is that blueprint matching the blueprint of Jesus? Is the house of our life, is it more in step with the house of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus than 10 years ago? Or is it less in step with it? Jesus was very secure in his identity and in the love of the Father. He was so secure that he didn't need to give in to temptation that he didn't buckle under Satan's accusations. He was so secure, this is a hard one for us, that he did not need to people please. He said what he said, he was who he was, and he let the rest fall. He didn't chase after anybody, oh no, let me explain, you misunderstood. You don't get an anxious Jesus in the Gospels. You get a settled, secure, grounded Jesus. He's also secure in what he understood of the scriptures. What they said about God and life and holiness and people. And then you look at the ministry of Jesus. And you see Jesus spending time with outcasts and broken 
and people that can't keep their lives together. And Jesus had compassion upon those people like sheep without a shepherd. And he went to those people and he met those people where they were and he gave them love and a sense of belonging. And he spent time with religious people as well. He didn't discriminate against anybody, the wealthy, the poor, the marginalized, the powerful. He spent time with everybody, building relationships, having challenging conversations. One of my questions as I think through my own spiritual transformation and the disciplines that I try to regularly engage in is this, am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Is this helping me be loving, gentle, patient, kind, good, so on? And I hope that we stay hungry and measure the process by the fruit we bear. It's heartbreaking to often see people kind of let their faith grow cold. And maybe they still read the Bible and maybe they still go to church, but they're very angry and judgmental and overly critical. And their circle shrinks for who they allow in it. We measure the process of renovating our faith by the fruit that we bear. My son and I, we started a show two years ago. Hello up there, still see you, good. <laughs> we started a show two years ago and uh, it's called Rust Valley Restorers and we hadn't finished it and we still got an episode on pause that he's probably gonna talk to me afterwards and say, Dad, we gotta finish this show. It's basically about these cars that um, people find in this junkyard, you think that they're dead, you think that they're gone and they bring it to this, um, this you know, company to have it remade to have it renovated, to have it restored. And they see the potential in this car, even amidst all the rust and the flat tires and everything that's gone wrong, all the squirrel's nests that have been built inside of it. They see the potential of what it could be. And then, and then this company creates kind of this prototype and they show the owner the prototype and they, they agree upon this prototype and then the whole time they're following this prototype. We're getting out the rust, we're doing what we had, agree, we had agreed upon with the owner, we're working and we're renovating this car and we're following the blueprints as it was supposed to be until finally the car is done, it's restored and the owner comes to lay claim to the final product. This is the goal that God has for humanity and for the cosmos. And if we submit to his process, agree upon his prototype, yeah, 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 it's definitely supposed to look like that. And then we, through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, cooperate with him as he's getting the rust out, as he's cleaning out some of those more painful parts of our heart, if we yield to him, He's coming to lay claim to that final product, that restored human being that doesn't look less like you, but looks more like you. That's the goal, that God would renovate our faith, our life, and continue to grow and build us, that we would never be fully settled, no sense of arrival, continuing to journey and grow in the house that he's called us to build. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much 
for the blueprints that you've laid down in your scriptures and in Christ. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are a big God, that you're not shocked by our questions or our doubts or what we need to understand, that you're a welcoming God. And you say, you can bring all of that to me. In fact, why don't you come and sit? Let's have a discussion. Help us be like that. Help us submit to your process. God, for some of us in this room, we think that there's too much rust. There's too many things wrong with the engine, all the electrical wires. They're completely in disarray. There's no way that God could use me or restore me. It's too far gone, too far broken. God, give us hope. Remind us of the powerful and relentless love of Christ. And help us to walk in ruthless trust and faithful obedience to who you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we close? We sing this song. Let's give this song as an offering to God, a sacrifice of, sacrifice of worship. May we trust him and may we obey what he's revealed to us. Let's sing together.